You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful, and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hello, my friends. I hope that you are staying well and safe and healthy and all of those things as we approach this heavy travel moment of the year. If you're listening to this when it is airing, um, I am about to get in the car and drive with my husband one million miles. Okay, probably not that many, (laughs) but a couple thousand miles to Texas, around Texas and back to visit a lot of my friends and family so i'm very grateful for that coming and yet like man with this omicron variant thing so many unknowns so much um pandemic fatigue general fatigue and all of that is very real so Uh, I am continuing to plan things into 2022 and just crossing my fingers and knowing that I may need to adapt. So these are the times, right? There is no end, um, no box that we're going to check and be like, COVID done. Yep. So here we are. Um, And whatever you do, over these holidays if you are celebrating I hope that you enjoy that time I know that it is often wrought with um, stress and family stuff and many things that are not so joyful on the surface so whatever that looks like for you I hope that you also get some rest and some restorative time to nourish yourself as we prepare to head into the new year So this will be the last interview that I share in 2021. And earlier today, I just recorded our next interview that will come out in January. So um, yeah, I already can't wait for you to hear that one. But you know, I can't wait for you to hear any of these conversations because they're all with people who I think are really incredible human beings. And for today, we are hearing from Jill Dunkley. So um, I met Jill when I did a year-long training in eco-psychology hosted by her husband, Andy Fisher. And Andy was not able to join us for the conversation because he's deep in the process of writing a second book, which I cannot wait for. Um, And I was just delighted to talk with Jill because she also really plays a special role in that training and holding this space and just... Uh, I was so grateful to get to know her some throughout that process from April of 2019 to January of 2020 when we finished, thank goodness, got to have the full experience before travel was restricted. And if you are at all curious about eco-psychology, which was not even a thing I knew existed until like 2018, so... I quickly fell in love with this way of viewing not just psychology like from a professional lens, but like 
just being human, the existential aspect of being human, of being an inhabitant of this planet and all of the beings that we share it with. Um, I It's just been so rich for me to delve into learning and experiencing eco-psychology. So I hope this conversation will give you a little bit of a taste of what that really is. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit more about Jill and then we'll jump into it. Jill Dunkley lives on unceded Algonquin land in rural eastern Ontario with her husband, eco-psychologist Andy Fisher. For most of her adult life, she has explored the question, what does it mean to be in right relationship with the world inside of me and the world outside of me? Now in late adulthood, she currently lives with that question at the intersection of trauma-aware mindfulness, yoga that adapts to the needs of the individual, and the earth. Jill's also a certified yoga therapist and mindfulness instructor. She teaches uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, among other things, and has found many great insights about her questions in the field of radical eco-psychology. So you can find Jill online at yoga-therapy.ca, and you can find Andy's work online at andyfisher.ca. You can also find Jill on Instagram at jill.yoga. And there are some resources that we discuss in the conversation that will be linked at the show notes at gaiacenter.co, not C-A, um, and that's G-A-I-A-Center.co. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Jill. We are here today with Jill Dunkley, who I am so excited for all of you listening to meet. Um, Jill, it feels like simultaneously a month ago and five years ago that we were last <laughs> together. <laughs> it's that wrinkle in time of COVID and just life in general nowadays, but I hope you're doing well. I am well, and I hope you are too. So before we jump into this conversation, let's take a moment to slow down and turn inward and just see what's emerging. So as always, for anybody listening, feel free to join us and um, you can close your eyes with us if you're not driving or otherwise just being aware of the space around you and the space within you. So taking a moment to settle. Noticing the surface underneath you. The space inside the body, the space the body is occupying. And the space surrounding the body above, below, and on all sides. And just noticing with this attention, this slower attention, what is present today? Thoughts, sensations, emotions.
just taking a moment to note and honor what's there. And then taking one more full breath. And if the eyes are closed, blinking them open. And Jill, what was present for you today? I think what was coming up for me, Val, was gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty grateful that you reached out uh, to do this podcast because it's galvanized me uh, to bring forward in my work something that I've held pretty close in. And, uh, and you are the perfect person to have this conversation with because you and I have spent some time on some pretty sacred land. And uh, this is really what is what, what is really juicy for me right now what is really exciting and um, looking forward to this conversation so gratitude mm, thank you and i i always marvel at the power of of words and language and that word galvanized i just got so excited <laughs> so um and and i thought perhaps a jumping off point for this, when you sent me your, your bio, I was just like, my face just lit up, uh, reading this part of it. So I'm going to share just this little snippet because I think this will be a good point, uh, for us to dive into. So in your bio, um, it says for most of her adult life, she has explored the question, what does it mean to be in right relationship with the world inside of me and the world outside of me? Now in late adulthood, Jill currently lives with that question at the intersection of trauma-aware mindfulness, yoga that adapts to the needs of the individual and the earth. Ah, <laughs> so I'm just, uh, yeah, that really just touches me and I, I just, I don't even know where to start with it. Maybe the part of being in right relationship with the world inside of me and the world outside of me. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about what that means to you. It means, and this is something I have been reflecting on a lot. And for me, it means capacity building through mindfulness practices and embodiment. And I believe that people will not be able to deepen into relationship with place if they haven't built capacity to be aware of what's arising first in their own bodies, minds, and hearts without becoming overwhelmed and, and unable to tolerate what's arising. And so that's, that's my starting point, uh, both for me personally and in my work teaching mindfulness and I have found you can't rush this part it takes time consistent practice patience and I think most importantly a supportive community to build mm -hmm. trust so mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking a lot about um, my feeling that this needs to happen at the local level mm -hmm. 
So, yeah. What does yeah. that mean for you at the, at the local level? Yeah. So maybe if I could just, um, just unpack a little bit more around, uh, the, the podcast and your focus on body pull, yeah. um, because I think what I have to do before I speak mm. to the land is I have to explain a little bit more about the work that has to happen, uh, with mindfulness and embodiment before mm -hmm. we're actually able to feel a greater sense of intersubjectivity with, I'll just call it the other. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the land, um, but also with the community, the human community as mm -hmm. well. So for me, that, that maybe is an answer to the local, mm -hmm. but I just wanted to say that, um, I love the name of your podcast. <laughs> Thank I you. Do. I do. I thought it was brilliant. And I do believe the ability to build capacity starts with mindfully dropping into the body mm -hmm. and simply noticing what's here. Uh, you know it, the sensations, emotions, thoughts, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But the key um, for me that made mindfulness different from the other practices out there was bringing curiosity and friendliness to the noticing. Mm -hmm. And uh, are you familiar with the work of Gaber Mate? Some. I've not read any of his books, but I've heard some interviews with him. Okay. So he has been a key influence um, for me in, mm -hmm. in the world of trauma and addiction and ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and and what he said really made a lot of sense to me. Uh, he said, if you get curious with what arises, there is no room for judgment. Hmm. And yeah. some, uh, just a light bulb went off for me in that moment because suddenly the, the investigation of what's arising went from unsafe to safe. Mm. Bringing mm -hmm. that curiosity to the inquiry. Yeah. So, yeah, that resonates for you. It does. It reminds me of um, this notion that I, this is not as articulate um, and, you know, take these words at face value, but <laughs> there's always sanity in the insanity, you know, that, that <laughs> if we look at something long enough, we'll understand, oh, this makes sense, right? That curious, like, huh, even this thing that seems so off or so painful or whatever it is. Yeah. If we're approaching it from curiosity, we'll probably find that it makes good sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And also um, in all my practices, I try to offer choices that meet mm. the needs of the individual. And that's part of my um, yoga therapy training. I trained with Gary Crafso and Vinny mm. Yoga. So, which was really at, at the foundation of it all about, um, adapting to the needs of the individual mm. and that becomes a creative challenge in group contexts and I I always try I don't always succeed but I try to offer people ways to modify and adapt mm -hmm. movements 
Yeah. And I call that creative workarounds. I don't know where that came from, but I love that. It's not, it's not a modification in that there is some standard version of this posture that you should be aspiring to. This is creative. What did you call it? Creative workarounds. Creative workaround. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah. And so um, that's the, the embodiment piece. And for me, once we've arrived in the body, the question becomes, can we begin to meet life's challenges through movement and meditation without becoming overwhelmed or traumatized by the mm-hmm. practices? Yeah. So I think everyone, bar none, is trying to hit that right note that um, doesn't slide into full-on overwhelm in one direction or denial magical thinking in the other. Yeah. And yeah, so so trauma aware mindfulness practices taught me a lot here. Uh are you familiar with David Trelevin's work? No, David who? David Trelevin. Mm-mm. Um that's something that I will um send to you. Um sure. so I was at Omega. I was at a workshop um with John Kabat-Zinn and, and wandering through the bookstore. And just discovered this book right in the very back. There was only one of them. And it was by this guy, David Trelevin, who is a mindfulness instructor and also a psychotherapist who is Canadian, but is currently working out of California. And uh, his book is called Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. And it has shifted the way I teach MBSR. Mm. So uh, it's... I, I really endeavor in all my mindfulness groups to create a safe container that include a group agreements at the front end of the program. And I, um, I also work with the window of tolerance. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. Polyvagal okay. theory. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the, the concept of the window of tolerance is finding that place where your nervous system can still take in new information. Um, You're not completely overwhelmed and either um, just hyper aroused or shutting down. And so um, what I do is I familiarize the participants in the mindfulness program with the window and how to recognize when you're in the window and outside of it. And uh, that has made a huge difference um, because people now are in choice and they, they know that, it, that maybe this isn't the time to sit in meditation, but it might be a great time to walk in nature or do a more vigorous practice, a movement practice, or just, you know, have a cup of tea or talk to a friend. And it, it's taken all the, the, the worry out of it for people and and help normalize uh, the uh, practices for them and they're 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 less intimidated more motivated more empowered and um, I'm always amazed at the evolution of um, I teach MBSR so mindfulness-based stress reduction but at the evolution of those MBSR participants because Mm. a a lot of them I've observed move from self-preoccupation earlier in the program 
mm. to a more spacious intersubjectivity by the end of the 80s. Cool. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I would say that we we have in general um, a a problem of self preoccupation, and not from like a narcissistic place necessarily, but just we we are so stuck in our own heads and in our sense of you know what are other people perceiving about me and all of that. So really being able to sense into interbeing and, and that intersubjectivity, that's really powerful to see that kind of transformation. Yeah. And that coming back to the word, word galvanized, mm -hmm. uh, that question is really alive for me now in this world that to me is unraveling and it's unraveling with climate change, COVID, mm. political unrest in so many countries. So for me, the question becomes, how to move this intersubjectivity outwards into our eco-psychological relationships with the natural world. Mm -hmm. And this is yeah. the part I'm really excited to talk to you about. And, uh, but I don't think that it's possible for people unless they do that capacity building inside of themselves first. Yeah. That makes so much sense because, you know, I, I often use the sort of, um, wording that I heard from Andy, um, of, you know, be becoming more fully alive in a world that's fully alive and how we can't, we can't be fully alive in our animal bodies. If we only experience ourselves as these sort of, you know, cognitive beings who happen to be carrying around these, you know, flesh suits and don't know what it means to embody that. So yeah, I agree. We can't, we can't fully move into that, um, relationship if we haven't yet learned how to be in our own selves. Absolutely. And, and that, that in and of itself for me has, um, meant patience and persistence and not giving up and recognizing that the timelines here aren't an eight-week program so and that, that's that's the other piece around local um, is students keep coming back over and over to do different workshops different trainings some are mindfulness some are movement and some are eco-psychological and, um, and it's really exciting to see, to see very slowly, maybe with glacial speed, um, something happening in this community. So do you want me to share a little bit more about eco-psychology, Val? Or I would love that. I was going to ask that because I haven't really delved into it yet on this podcast. And, okay. and I think, you know, we have to sort of, um, invite people into the broader conversation of like, that's not just, uh, that we feel better when we go for walks in the woods, that it's much more, it's much larger and more systemic than that. And, um, since you've been in that world a lot longer than me, I would love to hear your sort of phrasing and, and how you might explain that to folks. Yeah. And, and trust me, it's taken me a number of years <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to deepen into this. Um, but 
let, let me give a kick at the can here. So eco-psychology is about connecting the psyche to nature. And that in itself has radical implications be, and radical as Andy, my husband, Andy Fisher is uh, an eco-psychologist. Um, and he often talks about radical simply meaning getting to the root of the, the matter, like the word radish. So eco-psychology is about reanimating our relationship with the natural world by giving it psychological meaning rather than resource meaning. So, yeah. So when you see uh, the beings in the natural world as having personhood, creativity and intrinsic worth, all these psychological uh, uh, characteristics, um, then it becomes a lot harder to mow down the trees for two by four lumber. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that has radical implications because once we start seeing the natural world, not as a resource, but as a, a being, uh, mm. it changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I notice my, um, my brain sort of going into the, but, but what about like, where are we going to get our lumber then? If we're not, if we're not <laughs> going to kill, can't even kill trees. We can't mow the trees down. Like, how am I going to build? How are we going to build houses? How are we going to get paper? <laughs> it's complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. And we all live in this system and it isn't going to change overnight. Um, and it really is a, a, a pressing question for me because the destruction of wild nature through capitalism and settler colonialism, which sees nature purely as limitless resource, yeah. weakens the ecosystems and creates imbalances and vulnerabilities. And I mean, I think uh, it's easy to blame, for example, with COVID, individual people at wet markets in China for the cause of the mm -hmm. pandemic, when in reality, the problem is systemic. And mm -hmm we're shredding the integrity of the biosphere, uh, which creates the ground conditions for this pandemic and other diseases. So right. yeah, it's, we do need to build our decks. Um, and, but we have to start, I think, um, at this psychological level, really, really looking at how we are, um, and this comes back to my question, how we're relating to the world outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes me think about how, you know, we often sort of look to the wisdom of the indigenous peoples who were here before capitalism arrived in, in this part of the world, um, as models for, for relating with the world and yes, including um, utilizing those resources for food, shelter, et cetera. Uh, but not in such a way that just completely disregarded the needs and existences and rights of those, of those other beings. Exactly. I think we can live a lot more simply and gently on the earth. And for me, that is the question that I'm really excited to scratch my head with with you 
And that mm-hmm. is how, how do we restore voice and agency to the beings of the natural world? How do we change this relationship? And for me, and this comes back to your question around vocal, it is about becoming more assimilated into the landscapes we live in. Mm-hmm. I really believe we need to deepen into relationship to place and the revitalization, as you mentioned, of Indigenous place-based customs, I think have a lot to teach us here. So I'm in total agreement with you there. Um, and this is a huge challenge um, in, a, in, in our society because um, we, we don't even question the need to escape somewhere else in order to feel better. You mean for like vacations? Exactly. Yeah. And if we do feel better um, by running away, we still have to come home at some point to face our suffering or just run away again and again and again. And every time we try to uh, escape from life's challenges, that capacity building I was talking to you about, Mm -hmm. um, we are using up more and more of the earth's precious and dwindling resources. And Mm -hmm. um so it's, it's, uh, these are not easy questions that yeah. I'm, I'm landing on you, Val. And, and <laughs> it's, uh, but to me, it's really important to start having the conversation. Right. And even as you're, you know, talking about that need to sort of escape, um, I was thinking of the irony of how many times we, we go to vacation to these beautiful places, right? We want to see these oceans. We want to see these different landscapes. And while on one hand, I I think we can hold space for that, that very human curiosity of like my consciousness only gets this one lifetime. And I would love to see the different places and terrains and cultures and all of that. Um, but yeah, the, the irony that in, in doing that, in prioritizing that sort of escape to go look at that sort of beauty elsewhere, not only do we miss the beauty in our own place and the ability, you know, deepening that relationship, but also we were contributing to the things that are harming that, that beautiful place. I totally agree. A, A number of years ago, um, Andy and I, that, that word prioritize really resonated for me because um, we decided that we weren't going to travel to somewhere just as a, a destination. It had to either involve our work or um, family. Wow. And so that is, and so sometimes we're lucky enough because we have some um, uh, family across the pond um, in Wales and the UK and we're able to tie in visits and I can't tell you how joyful it is to then be there and soak it in because I totally get new landscapes and and the beauty of of the land and and my ancestors are from Wales so there's a Mm -hmm. deep resonance there um but you know it's just such a joy and um yeah so not easy um (laughs) this this letting go but in in those times when i am able to be somewhere and feel okay about it it i just i just sink into the joy of being there and um that kind of um brings me to um another piece um that actually involves the uk and india Mm. um 
because I've had very many wonderful teachers um, in my 60 plus years that have helped me discover insights around these questions of right relationship inside and outside. Uh, but I, I have to tell you, Val, that no human teacher has been as impactful and transformative as the land itself. Mm. And so the land is really my teacher. And some of those experiences on the land did take me away. So I, I traveled solo to the Indian Himalayas and, and way back in the 1990s uh, for a number of months. And my intention, though, was um, in relation to my vocation, which was yoga. And I wanted to learn more about the birthplace of yoga and eventually found myself on a pilgrimage back to the source of the Ganges River. Mm -hmm. which roared out of the mouth of a glacier called Gomuk. Mm -hmm. And that journey uh, was probably uh, my first vigil. Um, and it really brought me back to um, literally to myself. And at that time, I was in work that I wasn't happy with. And it it helped me to commit to um, teaching when I returned to Canada, mind, body, and heart practices full time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And just how, I don't know, it's, it's, it's tough. Cause it's like, I feel like there is so much, um, encouragement for people to like, go and live your passion and live your purpose. And yet we live in this society that like also needs all these people to build the airplanes and, you know, do the accounting and all of that. So it's so hard to, to figure out what does it mean to have a purpose, to follow a purpose, to figure out what passion means and how that makes us come more alive. Um, but I'm glad that you found your way to being able to do something that felt more aligned with your own sense of that. Mm -hmm. And have you ever read, um, there's a, a book by Stephen Cope called The Great Work of Your Life? I, it, I'm halfway through it. I have oh, been cool. for a year, cool. <laughs> but I yeah. need to finish it because, yeah, it's, uh, I, I remember that it's aligned with kind of the Bhagavad Gita, but yeah. uh, I don't know if there's any little nugget you want to share just as a message from, from that book. I'd be very curious. Oh, well, there, there was... Harriet Tubman in one chapter and Beethoven mm. in another chapter. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was a poet in one chapter, a famous poet. But you know the, the, the chapter that I resonated with the most? And, and mm. maybe this speaks uh, to something here. I'm not quite sure what. But there was a nurse. And um, in mm. terms of living her life, living her dharma, living her meaning and purpose, it was on, it was not on this huge scale hmm. and so for me there was a really important teaching there in finding the right scale for you yeah 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 I love that I was I was just listening to this um Brene Brown uh podcast clip yesterday where she's talking about kind of that concept of belonging and how 
you know, we've all kind of gotten into our ideological bunkers and we're, you know, we're looking for people that are just like us and that's who we want to hang out with. But at the end of the day, that just because you all hate the same people doesn't mean that they're going to pick your kid up after school or take care of you when you're sick doing chemo and like these things of what it really means to, to show up and, and like doing those things can be living with purpose, even if, you know, in our marketplace, they're undervalued. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, that, that whole area of sort of the life world that isn't valued, isn't, isn't part of the work world, but it's exactly like it's the pick up the kids or sit by the bedside of somebody who is Mm -hmm. sick or, or your art, or like, these are parts of life that give us purpose and meaning. And yet they're not valued because they're not part of the sort of economic, make the world go round. And why Mm -hmm. is that? Yeah. One thing I would love to hear your take on, I think we kind of started getting into this, but like with something like eco-psychology or just embodiment and and the argument for the importance of that, um, does that matter for people who don't really seem to enjoy being in the natural world, they don't love doing stuff outside or they don't love doing movement practices. Like is eco-psychology relevant for them? (laughs) Well, I guess we just need to look around being stuck in an apartment during Mm -hmm. COVID and suddenly the outside world may take on a whole different hue. So are you still there? I lost you for a second, but I think you're back. Yep. I am. I am back. (laughs) So, so yeah. So I don't know how much of that you got. Uh, only when you mentioned like looking, being inside the apartment and then the outside world takes on a different hue. (laughs) So, so yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. And again, I think it has to, it has to begin with inside and, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, looking at maybe, um, what what brings what brings you joy where are you suffering where are you stressed um and 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 coming back to that capacity building and that sense of we are we are ecological beings we 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 are not isolated atoms and so for some people at some level that unhappiness is um I, I love the saying when when you feel stressed you're too alone mm. and so for me it's building that ecological relationship inside ourselves and then maybe there's just a natural um more open-hearted spaciousness to begin to develop some sort of connection in the world outside yourself maybe a friend or um, 
um, a, a pet. I don't mm-hmm. think it has to be the rugged, remote wilderness, but there's yeah. some peace here about an open-hearted, spacious sense of intersubjectivity that personally I think may eventually evolve into a recognition that we live in the world, not separate from it. Mm-hmm. Did I lose you there or did you just finish your sentence? <laughs> I did. I just, I just finished my sentence. Okay. Cause you started to fade out at the little, I was like, I'm not sure she's finished. <laughs> well, what was coming to mind for me as, as you're saying that is this idea that, um, that so much of our suffering of our anguish of, you know, loneliness and stress and depression and apathy that is very much, uh, the statistics tell us on the rise, um, especially in our younger folks that that is intimately connected with how small our worlds can get. And, and, and I love how you said that it doesn't have to be this rugged, like it doesn't mean that to be healthy, you have to go and become a rock climber, kayaker, whatever, but just expanding our worlds. Um, and, and yes, I think that that involves a relationship with place and with the natural world in some way, but it doesn't have to be this, you know, very explicitly overtly nature-based thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to be different in discovering that sense of being in relationship. Everybody's going to be different. Uh, and it just so happens that my path and, you know, with Andy as my partner, um, that for me, the teacher has been the land and being in right relationship with the land um, has taught me so much and most of the um, vigils um, I uh, have done have happened within an hour of where I live here Mm. and uh, and not in like the highest mountain or you know these incredible vistas Um, Mm. but the the teacher can be um, a spider and <laughs> yep <laughs> love it <laughs> and um yeah and and the time i've i personally spent on the land has varied over the years like sometimes a day vigil sometimes two days or three days most of them spent fasting um with water but the last one i chose not to fast um because my bone density is going down and it just doesn't mm-hmm. feel wise anymore um but um, these, these vigils are co-led by Andy and myself, unless one of us is choosing to vigil on the land. And in those cases, we hold space for each other. And again, speaking locally, we offer these vigils locally to a small number of folks here. And, um, but, but there's one thing that's really important that I, I really want to um, mention here when I talk about vigils. Um, it's really important to recognize that we're living at, uh, on land that is unceded Algonquin territory here. Mm-hmm. And I am involved in a group of Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks where we're learning together about Algonquin history, culture, 
and politics and it has forever changed how I choose to be on the land mm. and um, it really is important to say that when leading or participating in time on the land in the vigil we do not pretend to be engaging in an indigenous practice and we have yeah. no indigenous teachers really really want to um, really want to honor that the chance to be on the land um, if that's where you're drawn is mm. is a, a universal human experience mm. yeah I exactly and this is such a, a, a nuanced, um, topic, I think, because I remember, uh, in one of our lessons, Andy talked about how many of these more, um, embodied practices and creative, uh, practices for healing and for connection have been marginalized and repressed in our modern culture, um, and in favor of the sort of Western medicalized model of evidence-based treatment and all of that. Um, and these other things are just seen as kind of kooky and, um, ineffectual. And, and so it's to me, the challenge of figuring out how we can be inspired by those, the teachings, the old teachings, the ancient wisdom of those cultures that, that, that did, uh, allow space for those kinds of practices without then just like taking them for ourselves, appropriating them, not giving, you know, due credit and, um, uh, reparations and all of that as appropriate. And, and it was interesting. Cause I, I was listening to one of the I forget the name of the podcast, but, but Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama have this podcast that they've been doing uh, a limited series on. And somehow this topic around a, a cultural appropriation showed up and, and obviously, you know, Barack Obama is just one person. He's not an imperfect, unflawed human. Um, but I, I value his perspective. And he kind of was saying that, you know, no one owns anything. Like everything's kind of taken from everywhere. So it just kind of reminded me that that's not like a, a black and white kind of issue that we can allow ourselves to be inspired by some of these practices. And like you said, being on the land is universally available. You know, yes, there's questions around access and, and food deserts and, and places that have a very little green space and all of that. But, um, but just that line between what is universal and what uh, needs to be um, seen as sacred and belonging to a particular culture and what can be shared. So that's a lot of words, but it's just coming up for me as you were sharing. Oh, that's so great what you're sharing. And you know, what's coming up for me. I listened to one of your previous podcasts with dear yeah. Tuesday mm. and, um, I, I just love her. Mm -hmm. And for me, there is something about I mean, I, I, I think I heard her say that her bottom line is it's all about love mm -hmm. and, and the hang in, hang in here with me here, just sort of, as I <laughs> segue into this, um, but that it, the, there's a, there's a kindness and, uh, um, a respect and for and a, and sort of a mindful listening to the other and I heard you say before sort of that you know 
people are different and um, you don't, they don't all have to be from your same tribe mm -hmm. in order to bring this kindness and sincere. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really believe I don't need to agree and I don't agree with a lot of the opinions and ideas that are out there, but mm -hmm. I am going to listen. Mm -hmm. I am going to listen because that's respectful. And, um, and there, there's just something here that feels really important to me and to, in our relationships, bringing that um, love and respect. And d just, uh, uh, just to let you know, I do work in a, um, a medical model health center. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they are now like, I, I always practice respect and, um, uh, you know, listen, like I honor the medical model, I'm working in it, and mm -hmm. uh, they are working so hard during COVID. Um, but they're letting me teach, it's, it's, it's beside a beautiful lake, and they're letting mm -hmm. me take the movement practices out underneath the beautiful big elm tree by the water, and helping people deepen into um, all their sense doors and they're they're you know really on board with the trauma-sensitive mindfulness work I'm doing and mm -hmm. so there is an openness in the medical model I think if we can somehow find that place where our hearts connect in that intersubjective um, space and to me that gives me a lot of hope yeah. Thank you for saying that because I do. Yeah. I think sometimes I can let my jadedness even lead to, you know, too much, uh, uh, negativity or criticism toward that. And, and I do think there's more openness. I mean, especially because if we know from lived experience that some of these things work, then, you know, if we can get the funding for the research, then they will too become evidence-based. So <laughs> Yeah, as much of yoga and and some of those things have. So so I agree that there there is more room for um cooperation and and doing what works and and often that is some of these approaches that maybe until recent years or decades have been less available but that's changing. And here's the interesting thing Val, this health center that I work with is rural and um huh. there's a lot of poverty and um and uh, in, in this community and um, sort of a, some marginalization um, and, um, and actually quite a large indigenous uh, community here as well. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting that this progressive health center is working quietly on the margins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if the group you were referring to earlier that you were... Um, collaborating with was the, the watershed group that you mentioned, um, in the questionnaire I sent you, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that group and what you're doing with them. Well, okay. So this is very exciting to me. And I guess this is, um, just to circle back to what I said earlier, that, um, we need to start on the inside and capacity building um, and this group that I'm with, they have all participated either in a mindfulness course or eco-psychology training. And so um, uh, the circle um, 
has widened to include three other amazing humans who live uh, it locally, either down the road, um, the furthest one away lives um, in, in, a, in a city just about an hour and a half south of here. Um, and they've all participated in Andy's year-long eco-psychology training, and they have all done at least one vigil on the land. Cool. And so I can get, we have spent um, time, we meet monthly, um, but if, if I could, I'd, I'd love to share with you um, sort of what we've come up with to describe ourselves. Yes, I'd love okay. to hear that. So Watershed is an emergent co-created project that aims to hold space in which to process, dream, grieve, celebrate, and deepen into relationship with ourselves, each other, the land, and more than humans in a soulful manner suited to these times. The desire to build community and serve life through ritual, ceremony, reciprocity, and care, and the work of uncolonizing patterns of knowledge and behavior informs our work. It's kind of a mouthful, but that pretty much encapsulates. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, that sounds so incredible and like the kind of thing that um, if every community had groups like this coming together, uh, there would be so much potential for, for healing all of the, the pain, the ruptures, the um, abuse of both at individual and, you know, environmental community levels it sounds so powerful. Yeah, we also use something called the, the, the circle way or council process, which we got a little bit of a taste of in the eco-psychology mm -hmm. training. Yeah, so we use that council process. So, you know, we, we have been meeting now for about two years and sort of have deepened into levels of trust with one another and being able to share if something isn't sitting right. and and sort of um, uh, just being able to build that strong container so that co-creation somehow, the work we do, where we come to, we call it kind of like the third voice because it isn't our individual voices. It's, it's somehow something uh, more. And um, that's been really, really powerful as well. And um, we have offered um, uh, one workshop um, where it was just like a day long and we're currently planning to do um, more events uh, in um, 2022. Mm. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. well, one thing I wanna ask you about is that as much as we know that um, this, connection with the land is, can be in so many different ways. Um, and the eco-psychology is, is more than just that even, um, one of the things that I got, had the joy of, of experiencing when I did the training with you and Andy 
was um, seeing the 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 gift from the trees of the yoga practices that you led. And so I would love for you to describe if somebody wanted to connect with trees in that way, can you tell them a little bit about what uh, tree yoga is for you and, and how you do that process? Oh, I'm so glad you're <laughs> asking the question, Val. Um, so, um, well, first of all, we should just share that um, we, we met four times throughout the year in different seasons and in Canada, <laughs> Um, yes. the, the winter season, I think you found a little cold, but we tried, <laughs> we, yeah. we, tried, we tried to sit out as much as possible in this beautiful grove of uh, red pines and white pines, mm. um, older trees uh, that were beside this beautiful lake. And so the the whole experience was um, being surrounded by this sentinel of trees and so um, in the summer session which um, Andy teaches something called the four directions model um, where we start in the east in the spring and move into the south in the summer and the west in the fall and we finish um, in the uh, in the north in the, the winter um, it's always a joy for me to because the south is the summer and its embodiment and its play and it's being immersed in all your sense doors and that is the the, the weekend that um, I lead the tree yoga practice and so um, the first thing do you want me to just walk through what I actually yeah Okay, sure. So the, the first thing I do is just um, tell folks that we're about to do a yoga practice um, in relationship with the trees, we're going to um, move out of just doing a yoga practice in four walls indoors, and we are actually going to experience something different here with the trees. And the first thing I do is I, I normalize it. So if if anybody feels um, awkward, and some people do, um, I, I just say that's okay, because many of us have internalized subtle mes messages from our culture um, that tends to um, uh, cast aspersions on any action or behavior that isn't sanctioned as rational, monetary, or trendy. And so the first thing I do is just say, ask if um, you can just check inside and ask that part of you that feels awkward to relax a little bit mm -hmm. and to know that there's no judgment here and that you're simply allowing yourself to sense into the trees with all your sense doors with no agenda other than friendly curiosity and I also offer choice again choice is so huge mm -hmm. and I say it's fine not to do the practice if you don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. and and then once people have decided they're in or they're out and not feeling any pressure around that I invite those who are in to look around the grove of silent sentinels that we've been sitting in for the spring and the summer and to take their time 
and to sense with your body if you're drawn to a particular tree and and to move to that tree and this this is where we're now in a psychological relationship with the tree this is mm -hmm. now eco psychology because now you are choosing to be in relationship with this tree not as a two by four potential two by four piece of lumber but as a sentient being that has intrinsic worth and and so i encourage people to um ask uh get permission uh to ask the tree can i touch you can i hug you can i sit with my back to you or walk around you or look up at the branches or down into the roots and i encourage people to really drop into the body and into all of the sense doors mm. And, and then we go through different movements with the support of the, the tree, different, you could call them yoga movements, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And, and then finally, once we've moved the body in partnership with the tree, um, I encourage people to follow the breath in and out and to breathe that sense of reciprocity with the tree because you're breathing in the oxygen given by the tree and you're breathing out the carbon dioxide back to the tree and just feeling that endless loop that you can't step out of. And then I just uh, encourage a time of quiet. Hmm. And if a question for the tree arises, to silently speak it to the tree and listen deeply and see what comes. And if it feels right to honor that tree with an offering, it might be a simple thank you, a song, a poem, a prayer, a gift. And I have to tell you, Val, I've been teaching that particular practice for years. <laughs> and I only just recently had a light bulb moment. Mm. Because remember, I told you, well, I'm 61. I'm fairly slight. And um, <laughs> I'm losing bone density mm. quite quickly. And I suddenly realized that the tree has been teaching me about stability mm. and strength and and i haven't really been listening to that teaching until mm. um 2020 actually um when i realized i had to stop doing all my downward dogs and sun salutations uh, yeah. this bendy body didn't need it anymore this yeah. body needed strength and stability and weights mm. and resistance training yeah. and it's like the tree has been telling me all along and i haven't been listening it was the mm. most humbling moment <laughs> yeah that's so powerful and and being willing to receive that that teaching and um and that sometimes that 
you know, there's all of, all of our internal stories around that and what our bodies should do and the resistance to, um, change and aging and all of that. Um, I, I appreciated recently when I was in a, a studio class, one of the first studio classes I've taken since, uh, before COVID and the instructor said something about, you know, you could do, uh, the vinyasa, you could do a chaturanga here. She's like, my body is done with chaturangas. Like I don't, I don't do them anymore. And I was just like, yes, normalize this. <laughs> it's, it's so great. And actually, so my, the, my own vigils and the teachings I've received from the land and the trees and the rocks and, and the other beings have over the years helped me integrate relationships mm. with my mother and my father, both long wow. dead, as well as, and this is, this is to your point, embrace my aging body and mm. creativity and grace. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the vigils taught me to paint. And, and so now I'm painting and I just love it. Um, I'm, I'm just so, and, and this is about being local again, because I just mm-hmm. walk out my door and any subject, any, anything, anywhere I look is beautiful and mm-hmm. full of texture and color and uh, light. And there is mm-hmm. nothing that I don't want to paint. <laughs> Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was thinking as you were saying that kind of like, oh, I'm sad for the people who live in places where they, they don't walk outside and see that beauty so close. Um, and that while that is very true and I, and I would certainly, I think both of us would have uh, substantial difficulty living in a, a concrete jungle kind of environment. It, it brings me back to my love for moss Um and how moss is this just like great beauty that shows up in all kinds of places, including the cracks between the sidewalks and, uh, and bricks. And it's just that, that reminder that try as we might, we will never, uh, prevail over the natural world and, and she will sneak her way in there. (laughs) Oh, I just got chills as you shared. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Well, as we start to, to wrap up, is there anything else you want to make sure to share before we uh, let folks know where to find you and all of those good things? Um, just uh, if you haven't checked out Robin Wall Kimmerer and Lady <sighs> Wheatgrass um, and her other book about moss, actually, that, that just brought that to mind. Um, she has been... Um, a really pivotal person in my life and has um, really helped me uh, to understand this idea of reciprocity and, um, you know, and, and the power of something like tree yoga. If you really, if you really understand the gift of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for bringing her up. Um, I will add that to the show notes for folks to check out. And, and the tree yoga was such a gift to me. I mean, I, in my, when I send my bio to people, I include the phrase literal tree hugger. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm one of those people who's like, I don't feel awkward at all. Show me how to do this. And yeah. um, I really like, I'm, 
I'm, I'm less mystical than I wish that I were. And I've stopped trying to force myself to, to believe things that don't feel true to me. But what I know to be true is when I place my hand on a tree, I feel that reciprocity in, in my whole body. And, and it's so how the fact that I can just walk outside and access that and connect to that. And then, you know, maybe, maybe meet the tree in these different ways with the tree yoga. Um, I'm grateful to have your description of that because now me and anyone listening to this can, <laughs> can take you in our earbuds. And as we do our tree <laughs> yoga outside, <laughs> Uh, I, I just think that's so wonderful. I, I mean, to me, this is this is where we need to go uh, to build capacity to take our mindfulness and embodiment in service of a world that desperately needs it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So where can people find your work online? Well, they can uh, come to my website. So that's uh, yoga-therapy.ca. And uh, yeah, and I can send you um, those uh, references to the books for David Trelevin and Stephen Cope. And it sounds like you already got the Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, so those are good starting points. And I'm happy to continue conversations uh um you know if they just want to contact me through the website um it is it is a, it's a tricky thing right because i i really do believe it, that the work is local and um so it, it's an interesting dance for me to um stay connected um but to encourage people to find their practices literally outside their door or in their favorite uh, place um, they like to walk or so, um, but uh, that to me is where, that's where the, the work needs to go. Yes, absolutely. And so I think of that when I think of like, oh, I want to come and do a vigil with Jill and Andy <laughs> and maybe someday. Yes. But also I, I want to challenge myself to, to find those, those leaders in this community. And, and I did do an, an Animus Valley Institute, um, retreat nearby in Kentucky, um, and, and that was lovely, but I, I have definitely much more opportunity to make relationship with the land here. So I will, I will make that a goal to do my own sort of vigil here, um, and find folks who, who are leading in that way in, in this part of the world. So thank you so much for this conversation. And it is just a joy to have crossed paths with such a kindred spirit. And it's been a joy to be on this call with you and to have had that year. What was it? 2019 together. Yeah. We finished right before COVID. Right yeah. before it came down in 2020. Mm -hmm. Pretty yeah. special. So um, I hold that experience close to my heart. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. 
For show notes, as well as a transcription of this and previous episodes, head over to www.gaiacenter.co. That's G-A-I-A center.co. You can follow us on Instagram at The Gaia Center and follow me at Val K. Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Look for the link on our website where we'll share about groups and events we're offering locally in Nashville, as well as tips and resources from our therapists that we hope will be valuable and relevant wherever you may be listening from. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.